waking up is not enough flourishing in the human space a podcast by Polly young eisendraft and michael berger when you peek into the cosmic unity of existence and feel the love and inspiration of awakening what happens next whether it's through meditation spiritual practice near-death experience ingesting a mind-altering substance or being born again you don't get a map for improving your messy life in this podcast Polly young eisendraft and michael berger draw on expertise in science psychology adult development psychedelics ndes dreams and buddhist practice in conversations about compassion resilience responsibility kindness and development after awakening you will learn how to chart a new path for flourishing in the human space in which waking up is important but not enough and growing up is never finished co-hosts Polly young eisendraft and michael berger bring different kinds of expertise Polly is an author psychologist union analyst longtime zen practitioner couple therapist and founder of dialogue therapy and real dialogue michael berger is an entrepreneur an expert in psychedelics a spiritual practitioner of jewishness a skeptic a real dialogue specialist and a filmmaker who is known for his documentary improbable collapse the demolition of our republic Polly and Mike will engage with each other and invite a wide array of guests who are accomplished scientists and seekers whose work lies beyond the hegemony of materialism. You may believe that conformity means compliance or being popular. In this episode, Polly and Mike talk about conformity in terms of Levenger's stage development as the need to feel identified with a group in which you comply with the rules in order to be accepted and approved of. Conformity naturally begins in the 6 to 12 year old human, but it might stick around for a lifetime because a person subscribes to certain roles and personas even when they seem nonconformist. Yes, humans can conform to nonconformity. Conformity is based on the conviction that group differences are real, more real than individual differences, and that people in groups are all alike. America markets conformity because it promotes products and media that are just amazing for everyone, as though we all want the same things. Hi, Mike. Hi, Polly. Well, we're going to talk about conformity today, and it's a really big and very important topic, and most people don't think about it at all, not at all. You know, the way that it's defined in stage theory is different than most of what people might think about in terms of social conformity or, you know, belonging to a group or being popular or following rules, conforming to authority. None of what we'll be talking about really has to do with that. It's more about identifying with something. 
you know, I was calling this the logic of conformity. So I want to speak just a moment about logic when it comes to stage theory, because I'm sure that most listeners think of logic in terms of reasoning, particularly inductive and deductive reasoning and wanting to be rational, basing things in logic, or maybe thinking about mathematics. The logic of mathematics is, is really very clear. There are hypotheses and theorems and assumptions and all of those things have to be clear and obvious. But the logic that we'll be talking about in terms of stage theory is not like being rational, nor is it like mathematics. It is the underlying set of assumptions that people bring to their experience that allows them to sort through all of the data, you know, this huge amount of stuff that is always hitting our perceptual system and our mental space and sorting through that and coming up with what does it mean? What does it mean? And so the logic that underlies a stage of development unifies in the individual's experience uh, their perceptions, their thoughts, their interpersonal relationships, their impulse control, and their character, so that stage theory allows us to look at a kind of uniformity in the way human beings change when they do change from one paradigm of perception to another. So each one of these stages is a paradigm. Each one of the stages is a whole set of assumptions about many, many things. And that's why, as I was reading some of the examples, how people answer the sentence completion test, the answers that we have, you know, range from values and beliefs, like raising a family, to feelings about yourself, what I like about myself, to feelings about identity, I am to thoughts about problems, like my main problem is. So the sentence completion test that Jane Lovinger used to sample hundreds of thousands of human beings in the way they make meaning about their lives involves a broad array of different kinds of topics. And of course, last time we talked about pre-conformity and we moved from the pre-social where there's no sentence completion test and we just have to look at what the infant or the disabled adult is doing to the impulsive stage in which there are sentence completions. And there is data for how people see the world when they're acting primarily on their impulses. Today, we're gonna to talk about conformity, both in terms of the way that it's arrived at developmentally and then how people become conscious of the fact that they are conforming, but they continue to conform, even though they're conscious of being of conforming, which is called a self-aware, sort of the self-aware footnote or iteration on conformity. It's this underlying logic, and it's that's hard to convey sometimes in terms of understanding what a stage of development is. So it's not just the way you feel, just the way you think, the way you perceive yourself, the way you perceive others, but a whole set of assumptions you have about what's real and what is meaningful and why should you do 
anything at all, much less why should you do something to develop yourself or to see what's happening in the world? I don't know if that's clear what I mean by logic. I wanted to hear from you either questions or how you think about this logic of stage development. As um, listening to what you're saying, there is a logic to each stage. And for conformity, I think about my experience of basically stumbling down the rabbit hole, looking back at 9-11, where the majority of Americans had a conformist view of what happened based on the narrative that authorities were telling them. And part of this stage is finding belonging and meaning from the in-group. And in terms of conformists, part of that underlying logic of that stage would be that you don't question authority. You are not critical. And in fact, I would say you're critical of anybody who challenges the awareness at, and the logic of that stage. So if I was perceived as a person speaking out against what authority was saying, I was immediately vilified. The terms that were thrown at me were tinfoil hat conspiracy theorist. So my credibility had to be destroyed. And it, I guess, and it, it became very clear that I was not part of this group. And yes. then, you know, even according to what you were saying, I also noticed that there was a conformity to the outgroup or the nonconformists. You know, the people who were referred to as truthers were all lumped together. Mm -hmm. Nobody mm -hmm. ever distinguished what it was that people were saying from each other. So I was treated to other people's assumptions about statements other people may have made. But I was, I was in, in essence, for quite a while, a spokesperson for this movement. I was in the media. So I could see people's projections that, quote, we all thought the same. There's this monolithic thinking, both in the conformists that are part of the larger group, and then the conformists within the nonconformist group, if that isn't confusing enough. That's really a great example, because the 9-11 opportunity for making meaning had so many aspects that were, let's say, a real test of how you make meaning, because in a basic conformist way, you believe what you see. You know, it's like seeing is believing, like Missouri is the show me state, you know, show me how this looks and I'll believe it. And so the 9-11 videos that were run repeatedly of the buildings coming down with the explosions were the things that we saw. And I remember seeing those videos just, <laughs> I remember seeing those and the Osama bin Laden videos over and over again and thinking almost immediately, those videos don't make sense. And why are we seeing these over and over again? And you know, at the very, very first, of course, I was terrified. I had my daughter was in New York City in graduate school. I mean, I was terrified for my family immediately. I, I shut down my clinical practice for a couple of days so I could just 
figure out what was going on, got my family to come back to Vermont, you know, did all these things that people were doing. And at the same time, I was watching these things on television and, and, and feeling myself being a deep, deep nonconformist at a level that I don't even know how to describe it. I try to make sense of what I see in the framework of a deeper logic about reality. And I didn't know why we were repeatedly seeing the same videos. Now, I know from watching your documentary that those video videos were shot from across the river, I think. And we really weren't seeing details of what was going on. Just like we saw the same videos of Osama bin Laden walking into the same cave and lying down and so on. And when I would see those, I would think, that man is walking and sounding like somebody who's enlightened. And how could he be a terrorist? So in both cases, <laughs> the case, I mean, I'm not saying at all that bin Laden was not a terrorist. I, as I said in an earlier in an earlier podcast, you know, you can wake up and you can be at the impulsive stage of development, or you can be at the self-protective stage of, of development. I think he was at the self-protective stage of development. I think he woke up and he found himself in a world that was divided between the infidels and those people who believe, and he felt called to do something about that. So let's talk about conformity. You got stuck in the rabbit hole there on one of the biggest Rorschach tests that has happened nationally, where you know people saw the same Rorschach again and again and again, but they made very different conclusions about it based, I would say, on their stage of development. It was hard to talk because the thing that was being repeatedly shown us was meant to have to evoke a certain conclusion that these planes flew into these buildings, the buildings came down as a result. I'd like to push back a little bit on the idea that seeing is believing, because there's a paradox involved in this, because what we saw with our eyes and how we perceived the events we witnessed and saw with our eyes wasn't the same. It really is directly related to the stage you're on. And at the time, I didn't understand this. But now in, in thinking back, there, there was a film put out by Camera Planet. The guy was person went and accumulated all of the amateur video shot in Manhattan that he could find in order to have a record. And there was footage shot in the parks in Manhattan where thousands of people gathered that day. And they were publicly debating how we should respond. And now in thinking back to what I witnessed in their discussions, their public conversations or arguments, how people reacted or responded was very much directly connected to where they are in, in the stage logic. So for example, the impulsive reaction was, you know, we have to bomb whoever did this. One of the responses was, you know, we should nuke them back to the Stone Age. That was something I heard pretty frequently. Mm -hmm. On the other side, there were people arguing, you know, that we should turn the other cheek, that we don't have to respond with violence, and that maybe we should be more reflective before we react. And, and here were people in the streets of New York yelling these things at each other and actually it's the most, to me, it's one of the most fascinating aspects of that event was to see Americans in deep dialogue over how to respond. And another- but was, it a was it a dialogue or was it a fight? I mean, there might well, have been a it, few dialogues, but what I saw at least on a sort of, let's say a more immediate communal level around me was a fight. 
like people weren't really listening to each other. There's a very specific clip that I have at 911truth.org from that film where at one point, one of the volunteers who was a, a steel worker who had volunteered at Ground Zero that day, everybody is fighting and yelling at each other. And then he tells everybody to shut up. And for whatever reason, in the wrongness of the moment, thousands of people shut up and listen to him. And then he asked the question, why are we fighting? I mean, this is, this is, I think, connects. Why are we all fighting with each other? It's to our leaders to decide how we will respond. Mm -hmm. And then another person made an artificial dividing line between these two camps of people. And they actually took turns making statements. Oh. And then another woman like, and then the, the volunteer, this, I don't know, he's, you know, middle-aged guy. And he said at another point, and again, there are thousands of people in silence listening to him without a microphone speak. And he says, you know, I can't process what I just saw. And there was another woman who had also volunteered who was saying, why are we fighting with each other? And then the two of them looked at each other and they acknowledged that we just don't know how to handle this. We don't know how to process it. And then to me, the biggest miracle occurred in the middle of New York City as these groups of people were fighting, they all, the entire park started hugging each other. Hmm which was so rare having grown up in New York. It, yeah. Unimaginable to see thousands of people hugging after so they fighting. They were comforting each other yes. in that moment of vulnerability. And really, again, at all of these stages, you can do that. You can do that from the impulsive to the integrated. You can comfort that primary compassion is there. You can comfort another when they're suffering, and it does bring about the feeling of unity when that happens. I think that I just want to be clear that when you said you want to push back on the statement, you know, that what you see is real, that's a conformist statement. And of course, if you want to manipulate what people think about what is real, you can use a lot of distorted video to do that these days. You know, you can use AI doctored video that makes something look real. You could, you know, as in 9-11, running the same video of a distant shot of the same thing over and over again definitely is meant to create an environment where people are hypnotized into feeling this is the real thing. This is the real thing because I saw it. I saw it with my own eyes. And again, I'm mentioning this because everybody who goes on developing beyond the conformist stage has within them a conformist stage. You know, it's like we are, we're infants for the rest of our lives. We just build on infancy. We build on the pre-social stage. We build on the impulsive stage. We build on the self-protective, then the conformist. So even if you go way beyond conformity as your logic for experience, when you're scared, you can go back and say, well, I saw that with my own eyes and I have a hard time believing that it could be anything else. And of course, you know, I'm sure we'll get into the problems with eyewitnessing for humans. The problems are tremendous. More than half of the time we're wrong. And that's again, because of the logic we're applying to the idea that if we see something with our own eyes, 
it must be real. But at the conformist stage, it is real. It is real. And you really don't have any other question about that because, you know, in a sense, you could say authority told you that what you see with your own eyes is real. So I want to talk about the logic of the conformist and then give some examples of conformity. And I think it's good for us to continue to follow 9-11 as an example. Yeah, I just wanted to to share, I mean, use the word hypnosis. One of the one of the fascinating things I experienced in in, in the early 2000s when I was making my documentary and we were traveling around the country. And I would interview people and I would always ask the same question. The first question always was, where were you on 9-11? And at that time, 80% or more of the people would start with the same sentence. It was like a movie. They were acknowledging that they went into kind of an altered state of consciousness that wasn't their normal waking state. It didn't feel real. People described the clouds after the tower had collapsed as, quote, monsters chasing people down the street like a movie. So by playing those clips over and over again, they did have an impact on the social body to really put people into an altered state where they were a little bit, it was almost a little nightmarish or dreamlike. And then the other thing where I was pushing back was about how we have this sense that my eyes don't lie, but in order to conform, we can see what we need to see and avoid what's right in front of our eyes. And how I meant it in some senses, I mean, I had many, many conversations with people all over the country when I toured about the film and in the Q&A. I can remember a gentleman who was a lawyer and an architect, and he asked me, you know, he goes, you know, I've seen the collapse of the third building, Building 7, which fell in nearly free fall. And this is really educated. He's an architect, because this goes to what you're saying about this logic of this stage. And he said, you know, well, I've seen the film, but, you know, where are the whistleblowers? In other words, he could watch a building come down at free fall and intellectually, logically, rationally, he knows buildings can't fall down at free fall from a fire-induced collapse. And yet there was still this conformist level that couldn't accept the narrative of what he saw with his own eyes. Yeah, I mean, the problem is, again, that we all have this conformist level within us and in times of threat, we're likely to want to get group affirmation. We're likely to want to say to somebody, gosh, I saw something there that looked like a flying saucer. Did you see it too? And that's a very typical response to being somewhat shocked. And again, for talking about waking up, there is a tendency to believe that if I had this waking up experience and this happened, did you have the same thing? if you tried the same meditation or took the same substance, et cetera. So we do come back to this idea that particularly in seeing something that we would see the same things because again, to go back to the conformist logic, the conformist logic from our parents is there's a world out there. There's a real world out there, honey. And that's what you're seeing. That is not something that you're making up and you need to make a distinction between the real world and your fantasies and imagination. So I want to talk about 
the logic of conformity and remind us, okay, we talked about impulses and how hard it is for the child to move into self-control and that moving into self-control around the ages four to six, the child starts to become very self-protective and also wanting to deny their own faults or their own defects. They wanna protect themselves. They wanna promote themselves in groups. The self-protective person who's developing at four to six years old is trying to figure out what are the rules? What's going on here anyway? So the discovery of an identification with a group is a great point of relaxation. Oh, this is how you do it. Oh, everybody, everybody will be told to do it this way. And I just have to follow the rules and I can relax then. So this conformity logic, identifying with a group that you need to trust your peer group for your own identity, and you learn how to obey rules. Now, the idea of obeying the rule is, it can be, for example, it can be the rule to wear the nonconformist outfit. It can be the rule to pierce your nose, your ears, your tongue, whatever, in order to belong to that group. So the rules may not look like ordinary compliance rules. They can look like anything that the group says, if you do this, and the group may not say it directly, or they may say it directly, if you do this, you will be one of this group. So I remember going to a Marxist reading group, for example, and there were a lot of rules that I had to conform to. Of course, going into a meditation environment, you know, particularly a large retreat environment like the Goenka retreat environment, there are a lot of rules you have to conform to. And you don't know whether the people that are running the show are conformists. They might be, even though they're in a group that is an unusual group. So the conformist by nature obeys the rules, believes in the rules, complies with the rules. And there's no distinction between rules of conduct and rules of obligation. There is a focus on being desirable to the group, getting the approval of the group doing what the group is doing, because again, this helps you developmentally. You don't have to just protect yourself anymore. Now you belong to a group. Now you have the sense of belonging and you can relax a little. There's someone who's in charge of the group or you know the rules of the group. I want you to get the idea that for a developing human to move from self-protectiveness to a group identity is a huge shift and a very important one. And of course, there's a natural push to make this shift at around the age of six to identify with your gender, to identify with your uh, family, your tribe, your language, et cetera. Some people don't make that shift. They remain self-protective until adolescence or even adulthood. But then when they find a group to identify with, oh my God, at that point, there's such a relief. Now they have the feeling of belonging. Now they feel someone else has their back. Now they feel protected. Now they feel they can, they can figure out how to do things in the best way. Like our family knows the best way to do these things. This is the way it should be done. So there is a belief that everyone who is in a group thinks alike and that they are alike in some fundamental ways even though a conformist observes group differences, they can see that 
teenagers, for example, as a group are different from middle-aged people as a group. But the conformist believes that all of the people in that group are the same way. They're not sensitive to individual differences. They don't pick up individual differences. So there are very stereotyped conceptions of personas, that is the mask we wear, the roles that we take. There's a stereotyped conception of niceness, helpfulness, cooperation, values. Of course, there's always the favorable comparison of the norms of one's own group with the norms of other groups. You know, like our group, we're the nonviolent communicators. The other group, they're the violent communicators. We're the people who know how to take care of traumatized people. Other groups don't know how to do this. And again, I'm emphasizing here the identification with the group. In this conformist stage, the sense of belonging leads to the feeling of safety. And this is a very, very big clue about why anybody wants to join a group is that they feel safer in the group. Overall, in terms of how does the conformist think about subjective life or inner life, they tend to think in banal terms. They tend to think because they're really just discovering feelings that feelings are like happy, sad, joy or sorrow, love or comfort. Um, at the conformist stage, this is the first time this individual has even thought about feelings. Up, you know, up until then, they've been protecting themselves. So now they're kind of breaking out into knowing that there are certain feelings that people feel, and also that there is the sense of having this interest in status and reputation that is the feeling of belonging. A conformist person is absolutely convinced that status and reputation are key to happiness. And again, no talking this person out of it. So one reason why Jane Lovinger regarded these stages as logics is that she started to notice that a person who's at a conscientious stage, which is beyond conformity, and we'll talk about it, who might be a conscientious objector to war, could not reason with a person at the conformist stage who believes that you should belong to the group and protect the group and, and, and thinks it's crazy to have these other ideas that you could, for example, belong to a nation and not fight for that nation. So that she started to see in a very clear way that people that are in a stage of development, especially before they get into later stages, will, will embrace the logic of their stage and they, their mind cannot be changed. It is not as though you can convince them because the logic will not admit of these kinds of differences. So if you're captured by the logic of conformity, and we'll talk about the slightly self-aware stage where you begin to recognize what conformity is, you cannot be convinced that there are multiple points of view, all of which are really understandable, valuable, valid, that there's a, let's say, pro-Trump point of view that has validity, that has humanity, that believes in reality uh, versus a pro-Biden point of view that has validity, humanity, and value. And then there's a point of view that doesn't believe in either of those other points of view, 
that has validity and humanity and value. You cannot convince a conformist of this and you cannot convince a person who's at the self-aware stage because they do not reason like that and they cannot reason. And as the research makes very clear, you cannot skip from one stage to the other without a crisis. You have to go through some ontological shock, some crisis that takes you into your own logic and you realize your logic is wrong. You realize you've been seeing things through a lens that's distorted and then you can change your mind and it's painful. It's painful, especially at the later stages to make changes because at the conformist stage, you feel most secure and it is where most adults are. The sense of belonging is strongest, the feeling of happiness with your belonging, the feeling that you're in the right group and that the wrong groups are the wrong groups. Those feelings are very, very relaxing for humans. You know, it's like the dog knowing the top dog is there and the group is going to be okay. The dog relaxes and has a good time. The human, if, if the human says, listen, I belong to the right group, the Seventh Day Adventists or the Goenka Meditation Group, these folks are the ones who really know the case. I belong to it. They've got my back. I can relax. I can have a good time. I can play because I don't have to worry now about truth and reality. I know what it is. So again, I want to stress that conformity here is a great find for humans. And it is hard to leave it because leaving it in a profound way will mean social alienation. Uh, you will never find that conformity again in the way that you do when you initial ha initially happen onto it, which you know really should be in elementary school and right into middle school, you know, that you conform, you feel at ease, you find your chums, you find your friends, your group works. And even you understand that if you're in a gang, that there's another gang, but you're in the right gang. And so you can relax. And that's a time where developmentally it serves you. And then once you get into, uh, you know, middle adolescence, it's not going to serve you as well anymore. There you're going to have to move into some self-questioning and some self-awareness. But so I hope I'm making this logic clear. And after I hear from you, I'll give some examples of what people say who are at the conformist stage, what they like about themselves and what they're like. Yeah, I'd like to share a great book that has helped me understand this myself and my own journey, which was written by Milton Mayer in the 50s. Uh, they thought they were free. I don't know if you've heard of this, but he, Milton Mayer went to Germany and he interviewed ordinary German citizens. So the book really is a collection of interviews and reflections on the lives of 10 ordinary German citizens who lived through the rise of Nazi Germany in World War II. And the book offers insights into how these individuals gradually accepted and became complicit in the Nazi regime. And it sheds light on the psychology of conformity that as their society was transformed by the rise of Hitler, you had to go along to get along. And it was a very, I mean, it goes back to using that term hypnotic, this hypnotic, almost unconscious process of finding safety and security in adopting the perspective of the wider group. And it also touches on, you know, conformity, propaganda, and how this connects to the rise of fascism 
and the erosion of personal freedom. And a friend of mine had introduced me to this book when I had begun looking into 9-11, and he said, you really need to understand this, because in a way, this is what you're up against, that as an outsider trying to shed light on something that there's a certain logic to the narrative, to the reality of our country at this point, of the nationalism of everybody having flag pins and flags on their cars and on their streets, you had to conform because this is the way it was. We had been attacked. So we come together and we rally around, you know, all the things that we're proud of for our nation and proud of our nation. And we don't really look at maybe where we could improve. We all agree though that, you know, we're stronger together. So if you're not with us, as our president said, you're against us. Right, right. No, you're making such a good point about, no, I don't know the book, but, uh, you know, anytime that there is a movement towards some moral position that is dehumanizing, like the Nazis, uh, that's based on principles that are dehumanizing, they're perfectionist principles in this case. It can be, you know, principles of slavery in other cases. When there is this kind of movement, there will be pressure towards conformity in all people, no matter your stage of development, because you're afraid. And again, that sense of emotional threat or physical threat will tend to promote lower stages of development in any individual. You're, in other words, what's called regression, or you know, you can call it going back to basics or whatever. However, if you are sufficiently and deeply beyond conformity, your moral reasoning will prevent you from doing that because your moral reasoning will be secure enough that you cannot sacrifice your humanity for a sense of belonging. And that is the reason why in any group that is fascist, dehumanizing, violent, about 20%, as it turns out, of people won't conform. They would rather die. And so even when Hitler was training the Nazi youth, and as I understand it, this is from a book that I read that was called Humanity, the Moral History of the 20th Century by Glover, that he was training the Nazi youth, or they were training the youth, they had to kill somebody at the end of the training with a knife. It had to be a body-to-body -body knifing, looking at the other person directly. About 20% of the people that were in the training refused. They either were killed themselves or they went to concentration camps, but they simply couldn't do it. Even when faced with their own death, because their moral reasoning had reached a point where they couldn't deconstruct it to conformity. And so it turns out there's, there's always in, among humans in any large population, let's say not in any small group, but in any large population, there are gonna be people that are reasoning at a moral level that will not allow them to conform to a dehumanizing group. But the majority of people will conform and the reason, and then there's a there's a, also a majority of people that conform because they believe it. I mean, this is the other thing that is 
really important to stay with that, you know, the majority of Americans are conformists. I don't know other cultures in terms of their ego development, but I would guess that there are not many cultures where the majority of people go beyond conformity because conformity does give a feeling of ease, of being at ease and belonging. And so, you know, anytime that you have a fascist movement or you have propaganda, if you can reach a large group of people with visible evidence for what you are saying is true, you're likely to get a large following because there's going to be this conformity. And so I want to read a little bit about what conformity sounds like in its actual natural form. And again, this is from sentence completion tests that were completed by real people. And now in this scoring manual are given as examples for how, if you were the researcher, you would score the answer to this. I'm going to use two sentence stems to give a little bit of the feeling of what it's like to be the person and then a little bit of their moral reasoning. So the first, the first one is what I like about myself. So that's the stem, what I like about myself. Just to give you the contrast, at the self-protective level, I'll read a couple and then I'll go to the conformist level. So at the self-protective level, uh, what I like about myself, all of me, everything. What I like about myself, my sweet disposition, I am so lovable, my charming personality, I am good at times and I am short. What I like about myself, that people say that I'm very nice. So I want to give you the feeling that what I like about myself at the self-protective level, there are exaggerated virtues, sometimes stated you know, somewhat sar sarcastically, my sweet disposition, but also there's a tendency to deny faults, to exaggerate the virtues of oneself, and also to find what one disavows displaced into others. In other words, I'm I'm nice, but they're mean. You know, I'm modest, but they're but they're always bragging and arrogant and so on. So again, we're going to say that conformity gives you a possibility now of feeling at ease in a group of people. They've got your back. You can be like them. You identify like them. So here are some answers to what I like about myself from the position of conformity or the, the stage of conformity. And again, at this stage, you know, people believe in kind of banal states of mind. Uh, they believe in a sense of humor. They believe that people are like each other. There's a kind of practicality. There's also efficiency as a, as a value that having family and friends is important and appreciation of family and friends is important. So what I like about myself is that I'm pleasing. Now, under this category, I laugh a lot. I'm happy. I am gentle. And sometimes my personality is friendly. Social virtues. I'm a true friend. I'm fair to everyone. I'm considerate. I help others. I like my desire to please people, that I try not to be unkind to people. And then, you know, that I enjoy things. I like having fun. I like doing everything, that I have fun almost everywhere I go calmness, that I never get too mad. What I like about myself is that I don't panic easily. I'm trying to overcome my quick temper. That's what I like about myself. And I like about myself, my patience, that 
traits that are involving level-headedness, practicality, efficiency, what I like about myself, my ability to use good common sense, that I am firm, my sense of responsibility, I have an organized mind, my ambition to get ahead, what I like about myself in terms of specific effective actions, I wash clothes good, I have manners at the table, the way I act when I meet new people, the way I sleep so soundly, I make good grades, and that I like about myself, I don't talk about myself. Also then this idea of family and friends, I like having a home, I'm married to a nice person, what I like about myself is I've got a twin brother. And then things like I'm healthy, I'm normal, I'm old fashioned. And then even statements about, but not elaborated, independence, like I'm an individual and I'm somewhat independent. And even a statement that I am what I am. Now, this these statements about what I like about myself, you can see that there's a beginning there's a beginning discovery that I am an individual, but it doesn't go very far. And I do remember my own daughter at the age of seven giggling in the back seat of the car. And when I asked her what she was giggling about, she said, I'm me. She was just feeling for the first time that she was an identity, that she was me and that she was herself. And of course, she was very much interested in her girlfriends at that time, her little group of chums. They dressed alike. They had the same dolls. They, they hung out together and ate the same things and did the same practices and dances and so on. And again, that starts to change typically around the age of 12, 12 to 14, when, when you start to develop your sense of your self-awareness, that you're an individual who's different from the group. But up until then, and really in a strong sense of conformity, the sense of being in the group is your pleasure. This is your pleasure in life, and this is the reason why you feel good. So now I'm going to talk a little bit of, the, or give some examples of the morality at this conformist stage, because we were just talking about that. So at this stage, rules are very, very important. They're more important than doing something that is right. In other words, you now know what is right and wrong by the group. And so there's this kind of sense that you need to obey the rules that authority will tell you what the rules are. The rules are absolute and they are by external standards. And at the same time, you might cheat or lie because you understand the rules and you might, you might be bound by your honor rather than by your virtue or your sense of responsibility. So a culture, for example, that is very much bound to the dictates of honor. So the groups conform to honor rather than to responsibility. A group where you need to face, save face, or a culture where you need to save face for your family, you will then lie. But you will have the sense that that's okay to do that because you're conforming to the need of the group to save face. So not all rules are followed in exactly the same way. So I just want to read a few of the answers to this stem. My conscience bothers me if. So these are conformist answers. My conscience bothers me if I lie or cheat. If I lie to my husband, if I tell a story, if I'm untruthful about something, if I cheat on tests, if I am not honest. My conscience bothers me if I do something I shouldn't do. I do something I'm not supposed to. 
if I mistreat something, if I do something mean, if I mistreat someone or if I do something mean, my conscience bothers me if I say something mean to someone, if I'm cruel to others, if I do something to someone else, if I treat someone badly, if I harm someone, if I talk too much, if I say something I shouldn't, if I do or say the wrong thing. I want to say that, you know, in this, in a conformist stage of development, the idea of talking too much is a big deal and uh, interrupting other people as well. There is, I think, a very strong, I feel, group principle in the northeastern part of the U.S., a kind of Yankee principle of non-interrupting. What I find in couples is if someone grew up in a family where there was a very strong conformity to the idea that you don't interrupt when someone is talking because that's a sign of respect for the other person. And then the other partner in the couple grew up in a Mediterranean family, an Italian family, maybe a Jewish family, or maybe a family that came from Brooklyn, New York, or you know, a family where interrupting shows your enthusiasm. And it's fine to interrupt because you're enthusiastic, you're jumping in, in, in an interrupting kind of family. The idea is everybody can speak for themselves. So why would anybody just pause and not interrupt? You know, when you have something to say, just get in there. So either of these, the non-interrupting conforming family or the interrupting conforming family can set up a rule in the minds of even an adult who's gone beyond conformity. And that rule can indicate that the partner's habit indicates arrogance or narcissism, that they interrupt or that they don't jump in when they need to because they're expecting someone else to create space for them. And it's just interesting to me that the way we speak in groups gets highly organized in our families. And there's like conformity to either talking at the wrong times or saying too much. And so my conscience bothers me if I do or say the wrong thing, I talk too much, I have a fight with my husband, I nag my husband, I argue with my mother. My conscience bothers me if I spank my baby too hard if I spank my son, if I scream at the kids too much. My conscience bothers me if I miss my classes, if I forget to brush my teeth, if I don't cook. My conscience bothers me if I disobey, if I commit a sin, if I speed too much, if I drink too much, if I break God's will. My conscience bothers me if I don't pay my bills, I owe money, I buy anything for myself. And my conscience bothers me if I think about bad things, if I am troubled about something, if I worry about something, if I worry about something I really want to do, and it bothers me if I make a foolish decision, if I make a wrong decision, if I act foolish, it bothers me if my children misbehave, if my son acts up at school, if my kids are out late, and my conscience bothers me if I don't help people. So you can see the conformity woven in to the moral position. Some of these positions sound perfectly fine, but if they are a group identity, then that means that they identify another group having a different position. So, you know, if my conscience bothers me, if I don't pay my bills, then I believe there's another group that just doesn't pay their bills and that I have to pay for what they don't pay for. And so, no, I don't want to pay bigger taxes for other people who don't pay their taxes. 
no, I don't want to, you know, support people who are cruel to others. I don't want to support people who don't take their responsibility for their families and so on and so forth. So if I conform to these rules and this is my morality, I then will judge the other group that doesn't do that as the bad group and I don't want to support them. So that gives somewhat of the nuance, I think, of the morality of the conformity of, of the conformist and how that morality is different from self-protection because you know at the self-protective level, I do steal if I have to. I don't have a conscience. My conscience never bothers me. I just never let my conscience bother me. Sometimes I lie to others. I happen to lie about something and my conscience bothers me if I can't get my own way, if I do something that I'm found out to be wrong or if I do something stupid. So at the self, that self-protective level, there's very much a sense of I'm not conforming. At the conformist level, I'm going to follow the rules. I'm a good person, but there's this other group that doesn't do that. I hear this complex, as you're outlining this, I hear this complex interplay between how my self-concept develops, how I identify with the group, and my desire need to be accepted in the group. Yeah. And also how the group affiliations shape my self-concept and my interactions and how the how societal messages influence the formation of my identity. Yeah. Uh, I also see in what you were saying too, there's in some of the examples, there's a connection between conformity and a consumer culture that underscores how societal pressure encourages people to adhere to certain lifestyles and preferences and even product choices. I'm this kind of a person. And how conformity is perpetuated through marketing that, you know, if you, if you uh, are using any kind of media, that you're constantly being bombarded by these marketing meth methods and strategies that put you in this conformist box. That is the old, the underment, uh, the underlying fundamental assumption. And also now more than ever at any time, are advertisers able to shape the self-concepts of infants and young children who are handed devices now at earlier and earlier ages, where as they're developing, their development is being shaped by these marketing messages. Right. And the, so all of the social media, they're all encouraged towards conformity because there's the idea that there's a group to belong to that, again, will have your back, will tell you how to think, will you'll have a shared identity. And once you belong to that group, you're going to be okay. And I, I see a lot of media, I mean, you know, I don't use a lot of social media, but I see the media that I use even, even the more, let's say, refined journalism that I do appreciate, like Substack or uh, consortium news, those are the two that I often look at. They also use stereotypes and a lot of media use stereotypes like conspiracy theory or the normies or postmodernists, the conspiracy theorists, the Trumpists, neoliberals. The My personal favorite is breeders. The what is it? Breeders for people who reproduce stated by people who have chosen not to have children. 
I see. Okay. So I didn't know that one. But a lot of these stereotypes are assuming that there is an in-group and that the other group is different. And so again, if, for example, let's look at the 9-11 issue that, you know, over time, I came to learn a lot about what was and was not physically possible from an airplane flying into a building. Now, not that I was ever interested in that. I was not. I was only interested in it because of what I saw in the videos of 9-11 that I couldn't understand how a whole building could collapse if an airplane threw, felt, went into one part of it. And as I learned and developed and questioned and read about things, I found that a lot of my friends were saying, oh, you're falling into conspiracy theory. Now you're being infected by conspiracy theory. And I would say, I don't think I'm infected. I'm trying to understand what I saw that didn't really stand up to reality testing. Um, and that's all I'm interested in. I'm really not interested in, I don't even know why it happened. I'm not even looking to find out why did this happen. I'm looking to find out what actually happened. But the critique that I was being infected by some kind of collective consciousness that I then would not, you know, necessarily incorporate into my thinking was impossible to fight because I know how I how I take hypotheses, how I entertain things. I know what my standards are for what's true and what's not true. They're very complex. I wasn't going to explain all that to every friend who says you're falling into conspiracy theory. And so all I could say would be, you know, thanks for the feedback. I disagree with you. And increasingly, some of my friends dropped away. And it was that way with a lot of the issues that came after 9-11 as well. And I won't even go into all of those, you know, ending up with vaccine mandates and so on. There was no way I was allowed to think for myself. There, there was this application of conformist thinking to my thinking, which is not conformist. Yeah, exactly. I, I just want to share for a moment, if I might, since you went back to 9-11, I had outlined a few of the points from Mayer's book, and I was thinking about how I had experienced the same thing. So I just wanted, if you would indulge me to share with our listeners some of these points, and if you're listening, just ask yourself if you felt any of this or witnessed any of this in relation to what happened with COVID, in relation to what happened on 9-11, maybe in relation to some of our foreign policy adventures in the last quarter century. So one of the really interesting parallels I saw was this acceptance, a gradual acceptance of authoritarianism. Like in the book, it illustrates how ordinary citizens initially believed they were free and independent, and gradually they accepted an incremental erosion of civil liberties and personal freedoms under the Nazi regime. And the film that I did in 2006, Improbable Collapse, the subtitle is the demolition of our republic, because I focused on what I perceived at the time would be this incremental loss of civil liberties and freedom under the guise of conformity, that this acceptance, this beginning to accept this erosion, it, it mirrors the concept of conformity itself, where individuals align their beliefs and behaviors with whatever the prevailing norms are in order to fit in. And this is, there's a survival benefit to this. Well, it's it's in order to feel at ease. 
I want to really emphasize that because sometimes this survival benefit is not obvious. In other words, you may be joining a group that you know makes you pierce everything, for example, you know, and so it doesn't look like that's going to make better survival, but you feel at greater ease. You feel that you found your pod, your place, belonging, your belonging, your belonging and acceptance. That's right. right. I'm part right. of the group. I'm, I'm one part of the, the group, pod. and they've yeah. got my back. They right. know me. Yes. You know, and another along that line, dealing with social pressure and group dynamics. So in the book, many of the people spoke about this pressure to conform, conform to the prevailing political ideology, and the fear of being ostracized or punished for expressing any kind of dissent. And I mean, I, I felt this very intensely, especially when I was on national television or doing radio interviews, uh, especially, and honestly, it didn't matter what side of the political spectrum the interviewer was on. I was an outcast for even suggesting any of the things or even raising the questions. So this pressure to conform reflects the influence of group dynamics on our individual behavior. And as people seek acceptance and approval from their social circles. Another parallel that I saw uh, was normalization of propaganda. How propaganda, I mean, this to me highlights just how unaware I might be of how limited my access is to information. And it's only grown more so in my opinion with social media and with search being controlled by one major company. So in the book, you know, they highlight how propaganda and misinformation were used to manipulate public opinion and create a sense of national unity. I remember President George Bush going on national television and telling, urging Americans to feel safe and secure. You should go to Disney. You should go shopping. You shouldn't interrupt your consumer lifestyle because you may be afraid in order to show our coherence and our national strength. Go out and spend money. Yeah. So yeah. Over, over time in the book, um, individuals came to accept the regime's narratives as truths. And it just illustrated to me the power of conformity and how we accept information that aligns with a group's identity. Because so, the, the group, again, I'll just say that, you know, it's it's easier, I think, if you believe that your group, let's say, if you're an educated person, if you believe that your group is not a conformist group, it is easier for you to be convinced of your own conformity. That's why, for example, I was surrounded by people from 9-11 on who were my friends who felt I was falling into conspiracy theory because I would you know, be interested in the, the things you were interested in about 9-11, or I'd look at information about, uh, even once we got into this sort of terrorism stuff where we had to take off our shoes at the airport, and I thought, well, there was one shoe bomb. Why are we all taking off our shoes all the time? Like, why do we have to conform to that? But raising that question would make my friends anxious because they felt I was becoming then one of these conspiracy theorists. And then, you know, it's only a short distance to people saying, did you vote for Trump? I mean, which is the right. absolutely absurd idea. 
I mean, I didn't, I would never under any circumstances have even wanted him to run for president, but none of these things were related in my mind. You know, that the, the shoe bomb thing was not related to anything having to do with even George Bush. I thought, why are we being put in this vulnerable situation where we have to take our shoes off all the time and walk around barefoot in airports? Well, I mean, you know, the, the government's there to keep us safe. And right. I want to jump back and respond to a little bit of what you're saying. And just as we've been winding through this topic, just raising questions that question what the in-group believes is sufficient that in the minds of the people hearing these questions, they perceive the question or they have a tendency. I've, I've noticed in my interactions that the people I'm speaking with, just by raising these questions, get so uncomfortable, they feel that they're under threat, that I can feel their shift and their regression back to an earlier stage, where then they no longer filter their thoughts or perceptions, they, they lose a little bit of self-regulation and self-control, and they may attack the person who's saying these very, very, as they experience, uncomfortable questions you're you're quote making me think about something i can't you know like this logic of the stage right i can't entertain this without losing it so either i have to make an enemy out of you i have to attack you i have to defend my territory well i'm i'm defending my group at this point also so my group believes that there's such a thing as fake news and my group believes the disinformation, misinformation. We believe that the conspiracy theorists are driving social media and they're putting out a lot of misinformation. And Polly, we think you're falling into that and we want to inform you of that. And at that point, when there is that kind of group identification, if I push too hard without my real dialogue skills, I will be the enemy. And it's one reason why I started really the whole real dialogue movement was that I realized that I couldn't speak about what I was interested in to many of my previous friends without being categorized into a group that I was not in. And at that point, when they fell into a conformist argument, there was no way at that moment that I could take a position against that argument because it would only further push them towards an us or them. You know, either you're with us or you're with them. And so I would usually back away from the conversation and say, I, I do disagree with you, but I don't want to talk about it further just because I didn't want to get pushed into the them group. But I, I often was pushed in there anyway, you know. Um, but I mean, real dialogue does tempt to get around this by lowering the emotional threat level and, and speaking in subjective statements rather than speaking as though, for example, like if I asked the question or if I made the statement like this, buildings just don't come down that way from airplanes falling into them. If I say that, if I said that, the argument would be, well, who are you, a structural engineer? This is funny. This is, I can't tell you how many thousands of conversations I've had with people who didn't want to hear it, or on the other side, with the quote truthers who 
also found it very difficult to understand why you could present all the logic and rational. You can show the physics equations. You can measure the free fall collapse. You can show this to rational scientists who understand the mathematics of the physics. And then like the person I mentioned earlier, who was an architect and a lawyer and had a very rational mind, you could, I could show all of this evidence. And the question would then be, where were the whistleblowers? Well, I can show you the testimony of the whistleblowers. What's the next thing you will need? No. So this jumps back to a question from an earlier episode, right? What evidence would you need to see in order to change your mind? And from the conformist perspective, it would probably be very challenging to articulate the position of my opponents. In well, a that's way that they that's would, right. You know, that's that right. they would but recognize. That's when we get to those five questions, we'll see that the conformist cannot do the logic that is required for examining your own beliefs. They cannot do it because and, there's no other group that is valid other than their group. So there's no logic like that at all. And I, so I want to jump back again to some of these, the, the takeaways from this book and the parallels to this, which has to do with, I think, where we are here. And part of this raises the issue of cognitive dissonance and justification, right? So with cognitive dissonance, you have individuals who are beginning to rationalize their actions and their beliefs to reduce their own internal conflict. And as they become more deeply entwined, at least, for example, in the Nazi regime or in the United States post 9-11, I've witnessed people who had to find ways to justify their actions in order to avoid confronting very, very uncomfortable truths. And I felt, I myself felt very, very uncomfortable having read this book and seeing these parallels unfold in real time while I was in the essence on the front line of trying to quote battle cognitive dissonance, which is something I had to shift my perspective because this created, I found myself within an existential crisis. And so the, like this transition from impulsiveness and then the desire for acceptance to a more well, It's mature... a transition from impulsiveness to self-protectiveness to the desire to belong and be accepted. And there is at the conformist stage, that we're, we still haven't moved on, there is no inner conflict. There is no awareness of inner conflict. And that is what signals the development of self-awareness. But at the conformist stage, again, the idea is I'm in the right group, my group, the authority of this group or the authority that directs this group, whether it's the father or God, if it's the, the leader of the cult, the leader of the um, uh, motorcycle gang, whoever the authority is, that authority has got the right stuff. And there is no argument on the other side because the other groups are wrong. So you really have to see that the issue is confirmation bias more than, you know, this idea of cognitive dissonance is only available to people who are beyond the conformist stage or or it's really a big crisis. Say you are in the Seventh-day Adventist church, you find out what they're doing is actually manipulative. That puts you into a terrible existential crisis. And then you can develop outside of your conformist position. If you remain, if you don't change in your development, you don't go on into your teenage years, become self-aware, 
begin to recognize your own inner conflicts. If you don't do that, and you do that later in adulthood, that moment of inner conflict and cognitive dissonance will be a terrible, painful crisis because you'll lose your group. You're going to lose your group. You're going to lose your values. You're going to lose your compass all at once. If you, if you make that change developmentally in your preteens, you are going to have some loss already from making that developmental shift, but those losses will be tolerable and you will have peers that are also experiencing those same losses. And we'll talk about them in a minute to become self-aware. But the thing that you need to see is that when people are fundamentally conformist, they don't experience that cognitive dissonance they just experience that that's the wrong position. And how did you get into that? You know, you're wrong. What's wrong with you? There's something wrong, wrong with you, you you're obviously, in the wrong, because yeah. you don't get it. You're in the wrong group. Right. You know, you're in the conspiracy theory group. You're in the fake news group. You're in the wrong group. And that's the problem. And I'd like to help you because you were my friend. And I'd like to help you get back in to the right group. And again, I think all authoritarian ideology plays on conformity. And of course, Jane was studying the authoritarian personality as a, that was what she was doing when she was in graduate school. And it was from that study that she began to believe that the true authoritarian personality was banal or banal, that it was a conformist. It was not a vicious awful, violent person or a person who wants power over others. It was a conformist. And well, in a way, couldn't you make that argument about the rise of Adolf Hitler? He really yeah. was. Um, yeah. But now, yeah. and yeah. he was railing and using the nonconformists as the example of the threat to the conformists, right. why they had to be eliminated, who had to be blamed for all their problems. And so in, the, in this conversation, as it evolves, we're really looking at how in maturation, right, our values, our sense of autonomy, the ability to think critically, how this is a progression or a potential progression of individuals' attitudes and behaviors. In making one more comparison with, this, with the uh, stories from this, this book, They Thought They Were Free, is that it underscores the ethical dilemmas that arise in times of conformity and societal pressure, right? It raises questions about the awakening of individual conscience, the role of self-awareness, and the challenges of standing up against the tide of conformity. This is, to me, an enormous area for exploration, at least for the time we're in now. Yeah, Because I, I see these parallels, and I've watched this incremental degradation and even our willingness to stand, stand up and voice opposition right, to, right. These, to the loss of these freedoms, which again, we all assume we have and they're ours and they can't be taken away. But if you let them go without standing up for them, history shows they are nearly impossible to recover. Well, you know, again, when you say let them go without standing up for them, again, if you look at this from a developmental stage theory, there's there's not exactly them. I mean, so right now what I see organized in terms of conformity and a strong movement towards conformity is both sides of some political equation. Like there's the side of the equation that is the calling out culture, that is the 
the neoliberal sort of Biden Democrat that is the, you know, the person who's favorable about going to war with the Ukraine, the person who was the type of, of group that was favorable about vaccine mandates, that is favorable about the idea that terrorism does require us to take our shoes off. I mean, on that one side, let's say we've got the people that I want to call out the conspiracy theorists and they want to call out the fake news. They want to call out the disinformation. And then on the other side, we have the people who I would say kind of believe in Trump as a savior or hold Trump up as a non-conformist conformist, or who also believe that, you know, First Amendment rights are being intruded on and who believe that the Constitution is falling apart. And they believe that, you know, in a certain way, they believe that everybody on the other side is a postmodernist or is a, I don't know, an apologist for moral relativism or something, you know, so that on the on this sort of what is typically called the right or the even the alt-right are people that believe that the people on the other side are Satanists or are degraded. The two sides have conformist groups that are very strongly organizing their side. And if you are deeply nonconformist like I am, I'm trying to look for positions that are not allied specifically with either group in a really strong way, in a really, you know, so it's been difficult to find the ones that are not allied with either conformist group. And then to try to assess the damages that I might experience interpersonally by supporting a narrative, you know, like the, the narrative that you did your documentary about 9-11 or the narrative that Robert Kennedy Jr. supports about, you know, what happened during COVID or the narrative that is supported by Tulsi Gabbard about the war in the Ukraine. If I'm looking for something that doesn't go with either side of conformity, it's difficult. It's difficult. There's a social loss also in finding that because then I'm not backed by either large group. And furthermore, at the logic of this level or stage, there's going to be a push by the in-group to deplatform you, to silence you, because there's little ability or tolerance to even listen right. to what the opposition is saying. It can't be, it can't be heard. So because it's wrong, because, you know, again, from the conformist point of view, if, by you're, definition, not, if you're not in my group, you're in the bad group. You're so wrong. Yeah. yeah, you're wrong and you're in the bad group. So then if if like in the case of a very post conformist person, you actually do not see groups functioning in this way and that you understand the complexity of moral reasoning to be very different from conformity and from groups. It is, it's very difficult to even explain that, even to people that say you've, you believed previously thought that to be the case because there's this strong group conformity organization going on culturally right now in the US. You're, you're, you know, you're either in this group or you're in that group. It's very difficult to find a way to speak that doesn't seem to back into uh, conformity. So that I think, I want to talk about movement out of conformity, but I don't know if, if you want to add something else before we... So I think that why why does this matter? That I, I hope uh, the takeaway is to take time to reflect 
on your own identity and the extent to which those that identity aligns with group norms or resists conformity and that this episode fosters a deeper understanding of how identity is shaped and the choices made in relation to group affiliation. Also, the awareness of societal influences, understanding the impact of societal messages and marketing on conformist behaviors prompts critical examination of consumer choices. It invites the listener to make conscious decisions that align with their authentic values rather than conforming to external pressures. But I'm getting a little bit ahead of the stage we're on. Uh, navigating personal growth, recognizing the stages of development that involve impulsiveness and conformity and how this supports personal growth. Listeners can evaluate their own cognitive and emotional responses, fostering self-awareness and a journey towards self-control and maturity. And another way I think that this facilitates personal growth is it is at this level that maybe we begin to build empathy, to make room to allow for greater empathy and patience in relationship to others, as maybe we begin to see our own behavior and reflect on our own awareness and maybe empathy for ourselves as well. And to acknowledge that individuals may be at different stages and encourage non-judgmental interaction that honor each person's developmental journey. And underneath all this, I think, is the importance of how self-awareness and autonomy fit with decision-making. And by seeing our impulsive tendencies and understanding their origins, individuals can make more deliberate choices aligned with their values and long-term goals. So I, I want to add to that, that uh, taking a step back, let's recognize that if you wake up and you experience the oneness and the unity and the love that are the reality in which we exist all the time, when you bring that back to your everyday walking around life, you will not necessarily translate it in a way that allows you to move away from group identities and conformity if you don't know about your own inner conflicts. Because the next stage, and I'll, I'll say I'm anticipating our next episode, the next stage that we will talk about still resides with group identity but it involves becoming self-aware, becoming aware that you and I as an individual don't always agree with ourselves, that we have conflicts within ourselves, that our wishes and our actions don't align, that our desires and our values don't align, that we are not one single thing and that a group is not one single thing. So this self-aware stage, which is where the majority of Americans land for their entire adult life, still has a strong belief in conformity and in group identities. Uh, the Hallmark greeting card is appealing to this group. And that's not because the group is simply conformist. It is because at root, 
this group of self-aware adults, this group of self-aware thinkers does recognize that groups are different, but they still believe they're in the right group. They still believe that they have established the real understanding of how things are and that their individual identity can be recognized and accommodated, but they don't have to go any farther than that. And so I, I, I still want to recognize that while waking up gives us an ontological shock, it won't necessarily change our paradigm for living unless we're able to go through as an adult, this examination of what we're conforming to. And if we're conforming to something that requires us to think in one way only, and to believe that there is only one way to understand difficult issues in life, then we're definitely still conforming. And that conforming and that conformist way of thinking is what underlies authoritarianism. And in, no matter the culture, no matter the situation, if you believe that your group is right, and even if you think in your group, people think for themselves and they are individuals, you cannot transcend authoritarianism. And so that's the thing that I want to make clear in these conversations about conformity. And also that waking up won't let you break through that. It takes a crisis to break through it if you're an adult. Now, you know, if you're 12 to 14 years old, it's a different issue. You're just growing up. Reflect on the questions raised in this episode as you navigate the landscape of conformity in your own life. From early development to lifelong roles, conformity shapes our interactions, our beliefs, and our aspirations. Join us in the next episode as we continue to unravel the complexities of human behavior and the paths to awakening. Stay tuned for more enlightening conversations on waking up. Remember to subscribe, share, and engage with us in the comments section. Your thoughts and insights are a vital part of our journey together. Thank you for joining us. Enjoyed this episode of Waking Up Is Not Enough, Flourishing in the Human Space? Don't forget to hit like, subscribe, and tap the notification bell so you never miss an episode of insightful discussions and explorations into the human psyche. Share this episode with friends and family to spread the journey of self-awareness and critical thinking. Together, let's challenge the norms, embrace empathy, and flourish in our unique paths. Your support means the world to us and our growing community. Share your comments in the thoughts below. We love hearing from you. Please take a moment right now to go to realdialogue.com and join our membership community. For a short time, we're offering annual and lifetime membership in the Real Dialogue community at a very limited cost. There you have access to countless hours of teachings, interviews, conversations with Polly, Mike, and prominent scientists, sages, and seekers who share your interests in waking up and flourishing. Again, go to realdialogue.com, join in a live conversation with Polly and Mike through your membership. The second Tuesday of each month, we have an AMA that we do together. As always, we really look forward to meeting you and to hearing your perspective.
please like and share the podcast with friends and family. If you know of people who you think would benefit from this conversation and would like to take part in our monthly AMAs, consider sharing this with family and friends and consider giving them the gift of membership in our community. This podcast was produced and edited by Chris Coltrane and is part of the Center for Real Dialogue. It is available on all major podcast channels for free. Thank you for listening.